Hello, welcome to We Know Nothing, where we know absolutely nothing. Welcome back to Book Club. We are back into Sophie's world today. Chapter 11, Aristotle. Now, you better sit back and relax for this one because I just looked it over and it is long again, just like Plato was. <laughs> so, gonna be a longer video. My apologies. Just, just relax yourself. If you have your book, definitely grab it. Let's get in to Aristotle today. A meticulous organizer who wanted to clarify our concepts. While her mother was taking her afternoon nap, Sophie went down to the den. She had put a lump of sugar in the pink envelope and written to Alberto on the outside. There was no new letter, but after a few minutes, Sophie heard the dog approaching. Hermes, she called, and the next moment he pushed his way into the den with a big brown envelope in his mouth. Good boy, Sophie put her arm around the dog, which was snorting and snuffling like a walrus. She took the pink envelope with the lump of sugar and put it in the dog's mouth. He crawled through the hedge and made off into the woods again. Sophie opened the big envelope apprehensively, wondering whether it would contain anything about the cabin and the boat. It contained the usual typed pages held together with a paperclip, but there was also a loose page inside. On it was written, Dear Miss Sleuth, or, to be more exact, Miss Burglar, <laughs> the case has already been handed over to the police. No, not really. I'm not angry. If you're just as curious when it comes to discovering answers to the riddles of philosophy, I'd say your adventure was very promising. It's just a little annoying that I'll have to move now. Still, I have no one to blame but myself, I suppose. I might have known you were a person who would always want to get to the bottom of things. Greetings, Alberto. Sophie was relieved, so he was not angry after all, but why would he have to move? She took the papers and ran up to her room. It would be prudent to be in the house when her mother woke up. Lying comfortably on her bed, she began to read about Aristotle. Philosopher and Scientist Dear Sophie, you are probably astonished by Plato's theory of ideas. You are not the only one. I do not know whether you swallowed the whole thing, hook, line, and sinker, or whether you had any critical comments. But if you did have, you can be sure that the self-same criticism was raised by Aristotle, 384 to 322 BC, who was a pupil at Plato's Academy for almost 20 years. Aristotle was not a native of Athens. He was born in Macedonia and came to Plato's Academy when Plato was 61. Aristotle's father was a respected physician, and therefore a scientist. This background already tells us something about Aristotle's philosophic project. What he was most interested in was nature study. He was not only the last of the great Greek philosophers, he was Europe's first great biologist. Taking it to extremes, we could say that Plato was so engrossed in his eternal forms or ideas that he took very little notice of the changes in nature. Aristotle, on the other hand, <clears throat> excuse me, was preoccupied with just these things, or with what we nowadays describe as natural processes. Processes. <laughs> to exaggerate even more, we could say that Plato turned his back on the sensory world and shut his eyes to everything we see around us. He wanted to escape from the cave and look out over the eternal world of <laughs> the eternal world of ideas. Aristotle did the opposite. 
He got down on all fours and studied frogs and fish, anemones and poppies. While Plato used his reason, Aristotle used his senses as well. We find decisive differences between the two, not least in their writing. Plato was a poet and mythologist. Aristotle's writings were as dry and precise as an encyclopedia. On the other hand, much of what he wrote was based on up-to-the-minute field studies. Records from antiquity refer to 170 titles supposedly written by Aristotle. Of these, 47 are preserved. These are not complete books. They consist largely of lecture notes. In his time, philosophy was still mainly an oral activity. The significance of Aristotle in European culture is due not least to the fact that he created the terminology that scientists use today. He was the great organizer who founded and classified the various sciences. Since Aristotle wrote on all the sciences, I will limit myself to some of the most important areas. Now that I've told you such a lot about Plato, you must start by hearing how Aristotle refuted Plato's theory of ideas. Later, we will look at the way he formulated his own natural philosophy, since it was Aristotle who summed up what the natural philosophers before him had said. We'll see how he categorizes our concepts and founds the discipline of logic as a science. And finally, I'll tell you a little bit about Aristotle's view of man and society. No innate ideas. Like the philosophers before him, Plato wanted to find the eternal and the immutable in the midst of all change. So he found the perfect ideas that were superior to the sensory world. Plato furthermore held that ideas were more real than all the phenomena of nature. First came the idea of horse. Then came all the sensory world's horses trotting along like shadows on a cave wall. The idea chicken came before both the chicken and the egg. Aristotle thought Plato had turned the whole thing upside down. He agreed with his teacher that the particular horse flows and that no horse lives forever. He also agreed that the actual form of the horse is eternal and immutable. But the idea horse was simply a concept that we humans had formed after seeing a certain number of horses. The idea or form horse thus had no existence of its own. To Aristotle, the idea or the form horse was made up of the horse's characteristics, which define what we today call the horse species. To be more precise, by form horse, Aristotle meant that which is common to all horses. And here the metaphor of the gingerbread mold does not hold up, because the mold exists independently of the particular gingerbread cookies. Aristotle did not believe in the existence of any such molds or forms that, as it were, lay on their own shelf beyond the natural world. On the contrary, to Aristotle the forms were in the things, because they were the particular characteristics of these things. So Aristotle disagreed with Plato that the idea chicken came before the chicken. What Aristotle called the form chicken is present in every single chicken as the chicken's particular set characteristics. For one, that it lay eggs. The real chicken and the form chicken are thus just as inseparable as body and soul. And that is really the essence of Aristotle's criticism of Plato's theory of ideas. But you should not ignore the fact that this was a dramatic turn of thought. The highest degree of reality in Plato's theory was that which we think with our reason. It was equally apparent to Aristotle that the highest degree of reality is that which we perceive with our senses. 
Plato thought that all the things we see in the natural world were purely reflections of things that existed in the higher reality of the world of ideas, and thereby in the human soul. Aristotle thought the opposite. Things that are in the human soul were purely reflections of natural objects. So nature is the real world. According to Aristotle, Plato was trapped in a mythical world picture in which the human imagination was confused with the real world. Aristotle pointed out that nothing exists in consciousness that has not first been experienced by the senses. Plato would have said that there is nothing in the natural world that has not first existed in the world of ideas. Aristotle held that Plato was thus doubling the number of things. He explained a horse by referring to the idea horse. But what kind of an explanation is that, Sophie? Where does the idea horse come from, is my question. Might there not even be a third horse, which the idea horse is just an imitation of? Aristotle held that all our thoughts and ideas have come into our consciousness through what we have heard and seen, but we also have an innate power of reason. We have no innate ideas, as Plato held, but we have the innate faculty of organizing all sensory impressions into categories and classes. This is how concepts such as stone, plant, animal, and human arise. Similarly, there arise concepts like horse, lobster, and canary. Aristotle did not deny that humans have innate reason. On the contrary, it is precisely reason, according to Aristotle, that it's man's most distinguishing characteristic. But our reason is completely empty until we have sensed something, so man has no innate ideas. The form of a thing is its specific characteristics. Having come to terms with Plato's theory of ideas, Aristotle decided that reality consisted of various separate things that constitute a unity of form and substance. The substance is what things are made of, while the form is each thing's specific characteristics. A chicken is fluttering about in front of you, Sophie. The chicken's form is precisely that it flutters and that it cackles and lays eggs. So by the form of a chicken, we mean the specific characteristics of its species, or in other words, what it does. When the chicken dies and cackles no more, its form ceases to exist. The only thing that remains is the chicken's substance. Sadly enough, Sophie, but then it is no longer a chicken. As I said earlier, Aristotle was concerned with the changes in nature. Substance always contains the potentiality to realize a, a specific form. We could say that substance always strives towards achieving an innate potentiality. Every change in nature, according to Aristotle, is a transformation of substance from the potential to the actual. Yes, I'll explain what I mean, Sophie. See if this funny story helps you. A sculptor is working on a large block of granite. He hacks away at the formless block every day. One day, a little boy comes by and says, What are you looking for? Wait and see, answers the sculptor. After a few days, the little boy comes back, and now the sculptor has carved a beautiful horse out of granite. The boy stares at it in amazement. Then he turns to the sculptor and says, How did you know it was in there? How indeed? In a sense, the sculptor had seen the horse's form in the block of granite, because that particular block of granite had the potentiality to be formed into the shape of a horse. Similarly, Aristotle believed that everything in nature has the potentiality of realizing or achieving a specific form. 
Let us return to the chicken and the egg. A chicken's egg has the potentiality to become a chicken. This does not mean that all chicken's eggs become chickens. Many of them end up on the breakfast table as fried eggs, omelets, or scrambled eggs without ever having realized their potentiality. But it is equally obvious that a chicken's egg cannot become a goose. That potentiality is not within a chicken's egg. The form of a thing, then, says something about its limitation as well as its potentiality. When Aristotle talks about the substance and form of things, he does not only refer to living organisms. Just as it is the chicken's form to cackle, flutter its wings, and lay eggs, it is the form of the stone to fall to the ground. Just as the chicken cannot help cackling, the stone cannot help falling to the ground. You can, of course, lift a stone and hurl it high into the air, but because it is in the stone's nature to fall to the ground, you cannot hurl it to the moon. Take care when you perform this experiment, because the stone might take revenge and find the shortest route back to the earth. (laughs) The final cause. Before we leave the subject of all living and dead things having a form that says something about their potential action, I must add that Aristotle had a remarkable view of casualty in nature. Today, when we talk about the cause of anything, we mean how it came to happen. The window pane was smashed because Peter hurled a stone through it. A shoe was made because the shoemaker sews pieces of leather together. But Aristotle held that there were different types of different types of <laughs> cause in nature. Altogether, he named four different causes. It is important to understand what he meant by what he called the final cause. In the case of window smashing, it is quite reasonable to ask why Peter threw the stone. We are thus asking what his purpose was. There can be no doubt that purpose played a role also in the matter of the shoe being made. But Aristotle also took into account a similar purpose when considering the purely lifeless processes in nature. Here's an example. Why does it rain, Sophie? You've probably learned at school that it rains because the moisture in the clouds cools and condenses into raindrops that are drawn to the earth by the force of gravity. Aristotle would have nodded in agreement, but he would have added that so far you have only mentioned three of the causes. The material cause is that the moisture, the clouds, was there at the precise moment when the air cooled. The efficient cause is that the moisture cools, and the formal cause is that the form or nature of the water is to fall to the earth. But if you stopped there, Aristotle would add that it rains because plants and animals need rainwater in order to grow. This he called the final cause. Aristotle assigns the raindrops a life task or purpose. We would probably turn the whole thing upside down and say that plants grow because they find moisture. You can see the difference, can't you, Sophie? Aristotle believed that there is a purpose behind everything in nature. It rains so the plants can grow, oranges and grapes grow so that people can eat them. That is not the nature of scientific reasoning today. We say that food and water are necessary conditions of life for man and beast. Had we not had these conditions, we would not have existed. But it is not the purpose of water or oranges to be food for us. In the question of causality, then, we're tempted to say that Aristotle was wrong. But let us not be too hasty. Many people believe that God created the world as it is so that all his creatures could live in it. Viewed in this way, it can naturally be claimed that there is water in the rivers because animals and humans need water to live. But now we are talking about God's purpose. 
The raindrops in the waters of the river have no interest in our welfare. Logic. The distinction between form and substance plays an important part in Aristotle's explanation on the way we discern things in the world. When we discern things, we classify them in various groups or categories. I see a horse, then I see another horse, and another. The horses are not exactly alike, but they have something in common, and this common something is the horse's form. Whatever might be distinctive or individual belongs to the horse's substance. So we go around pigeonholing everything. We put cows in cow sheds, horses in stables, pigs in pigsties, and chickens in the chicken coops. The same happens when Sophia Munson tidies up her room. She puts her books on the bookshelf, school books in her school bag, and her magazines in the drawer. Then she folds her clothes neatly and puts them in the closet. Underwear on one shelf, sweaters on the other, socks in a drawer on their own. Notice that we do the same thing in our minds. We distinguish between things made of stone, things made of wool, and made of rubber. We distinguish between things that are alive and dead, and we distinguish between vegetable, animal, and human. Do you see, Sophie? Aristotle wanted to do a thorough clearing up in nature's room. He tried to show that everything in nature belongs to different categories and subcategories. Hermes is a live creature, more specifically an animal, more specifically a vertebrate, more specifically a mammal, more specifically a dog, more specifically a Labrador, more specifically a male Labrador. (laughs) Go into your room, Sophie. Pick up something, anything from the floor. Whatever you take, you will find that you are holding belongs to a higher category. The day you see something you are unable to classify, you will get a shock. If, for example, you discover a small what's-it, and you can't say really say whether it's an animal, vegetable, or mineral, I don't think you would dare touch it. Saying animal, vegetable, and mineral reminds me of that party game where the victim is sent outside the room, and when he comes in again, he has to guess what everyone else is thinking of. Everyone has agreed to think of Fluffy the cat, which at the moment is the neighbor's garden. Is the neighbor's garden? Is in the neighbor's garden. The victim comes in and begins to guess. The others must only answer yes or no. If the victim is a good Aristotelian and therefore no victim, the game could go pretty much as follows. Is it concrete? Yes. Mineral? No. Is it alive? Yes. Vegetable? No. Animal? Yes. Is it a bird? No. Is it a mammal? Yes. Is it the whole animal? Yes. Is it a cat? Yes. Is it fluffy? Yeah. Laughter. So Aristotle invented that game. We ought to give Plato the credit for having invented hide-and-seek. Democritus has already been credited with having invented Lego. Aristotle was a meticulous organizer who set out to clarify our concepts. In fact, he founded the science of logic. He demonstrated a number of laws governing conclusions or proofs that were valid. One example will suffice. If I first establish that all living creatures are mortal, first premise, and then establish that Hermes is a living creature, second premise, I can then elegantly conclude that Hermes is immortal, is, sorry, is mortal. The example demonstrates that Aristotle's logic was based on the correlation of terms, in this case, living creature and mortal. 
Even though one has to admit that the above conclusion is 100% valid, we may also add that it hardly tells us anything new. We already knew that Hermes was mortal. He's a dog, and all dogs are living creatures, which are mortal, unlike the rock of Mount Everest. Certainly we knew that, Sophie. But the relationship between classes of things is not always so obvious. From time to time, it can be necessary to clarify our concepts. For example... Is it really possible that tiny little baby mice suckle just like lambs and piglets? Mice certainly do not lay eggs. When did I last see a mouse's egg? So they give birth to live young, just like pigs and sheep. But we call animals that bear live young mammals, and mammals are animals that feed on their mother's milk. So we got there. We had the answer inside us, but we had to think it through. We forgot for the moment that mice really do suckle from their mother. Perhaps it was because we've never seen a baby mouse being suckled. For the simple reason that mice are rather shy of humans when they suckle their young. Nature's scale. When Aristotle clears up in life, he first of all points out that everything in the natural world can be divided into two main categories. On the one hand, there are non-living things such as stones, drops of water, or clumps of soil. These things have no potentiality for change. According to Aristotle, non-living things can only change through external influence. Only living things have the potentiality for change. Aristotle divides living things into two different categories. One compromises plants and the other creatures. Finally, these creatures can also be divided into two subcategories, namely animals and humans. You have to admit that Aristotle's categories are clear and simple. There is a decisive difference between a living and a non-living thing, for example, a rose and a stone, just as there is a decisive difference between a plant and an animal, for example, a rose and a horse. I would also claim that there is definitely a difference between a horse and a man. But what exactly does the difference consist of? Can you tell me that? Unfortunately, I do not have time to wait while you write the answer down and put it in a pink envelope with a lump of sugar, so I'll answer myself. When Aristotle divides natural phenomena into various categories, his uh, criterion is the object's characteristics, or more specifically, what it can do or what it does. All living things, plants, animals, humans, have the ability to absorb nourishment, to grow, and to propagate. All living creatures, animals, and humans, have in addition the ability to perceive the world around them and to move about. Moreover, all humans have the ability to think, or otherwise to order their perceptions into various categories and classes. So, there are in reality no sharp boundaries in the natural world. We observe a gradual transition from simple growths to more complicated plants, from simple animals to more complicated animals. At the top of the scale is man, who, according to Aristotle, lives the whole life of nature. Man grows and absorbs nourishment like plants. He has feelings and the ability to move like animals. But he also has a a specific characteristic peculiar, 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 wow, words, peculiar, peculiar to humans. And that is the ability to think rationally. Therefore, man has a spark of divine reason, Sophie. Yes, I did say divine. From time to time, Aristotle reminds us that there must be a God who started all movement in the natural world. Therefore, God must be at the very top of nature's scale. 
Aristotle imagined the movement of the stars and the planets guiding all movement on Earth. But there had to be something causing the heavenly bodies to move. Aristotle called this the first mover, or God. The first mover is itself at rest, but it is the formal cause of the movement of the heavenly bodies, and thus of all movement in nature. Ethics. Let us go back to man, Sophie. According to Aristotle, man's form compromises a soul, comprises a soul, which has a plant-like part, an animal part, and a rational part. And now he asks, how should we live? What does it require to live a good life? His answer, man can only achieve happiness by using all of his abilities and capabilities. Aristotle held that there are three forms of happiness. The first form of happiness is a life of pleasure and enjoyment. The second form of happiness is a life of as a free and responsible citizen. The third form is a life as thinker and philosopher. Aristotle then emphasized that all three criteria must be present at the same time for man to find happiness and fulfillment. He rejected all forms of imbalance. Had he lived today, he might have said that a person who only develops his body lives a life that is just as unbalanced as someone who only uses his head. Both extremes are an expression of a warped way of life. The same applies in human relationships, where Aristotle advocated the golden mean. We must be neither cowardly nor rash, but courageous, too little courage is cowardice, too much is rashness. Neither miserly nor extravagant, but liberal, not liberal enough is miserly, too liberal is extravagant. The same goes for eating. It is dangerous to eat too little, but also dangerous to eat too much. The ethics of both Plato and Aristotle contain echoes of Greek medicine. Only by exercising balance and temperance will I achieve a happy or harmonious life. Politics. The undesirability of cultivating extremes is also expressed in Aristotle's view of society. He says that man is by nature a political animal. Without a society around us, we are not real people, he claimed. He pointed out that the family and the village satisfy our primary needs of food, warmth, marriage, and child rearing. But the highest form of human fellowship is only to be found in the state. This leads to the question of how the state should be organized. You remember Plato's philosophic state? Aristotle describes three good forms of constitution. One is monarchy, or kingship, which means there is only one head of state. For this type of constitution to be good, it must not degenerate into tyranny, that is, when one ruler governs the state to his own advantage. Another good form of constitution is aristocracy, in which there is a larger or smaller group of rulers. This constitutional form must be aware of degenerating into an oligarchy, when the government is run by a few people. An example of that would be a junta. The third good constitutional form is what Aristotle called polity, polity, which means democracy. But this form also has its negative aspect. A democracy can quickly develop into a mob rule. Even if the tyrannic Hitler had not become head of state in Germany, all the lesser Nazis could have formed a terrifying mob rule. Views on women. Oh boy. (laughs) Finally, let us look at Aristotle's view on women. His were unfortunately not as uplifting as Plato's. (laughs) Aristotle was more inclined to believe that women were incomplete in some way. 
A woman was an unfinished man. <laughs> huh. Okay. In reproduction, woman is passive and receptive, whilst man is active and productive. For the child inherits only the male characteristics, claimed Aristotle. He believed that all the child's characteristics lay complete in the male sperm. The woman was the soil, receiving and bringing forth the seed, whilst the man was the sower. Or in the Aristotelian, Aristotelian language, the man provides the form, and the woman contributes the substance. It is, of course, both astonishing and highly regrettable that an otherwise so intelligent man could be so wrong about the relationship of the sexes. But it demonstrates two things. First, that Aristotle could not have had much practical experience regarding the lives of women and children. And second, it shows how wrong things can go when men are allowed to reign supreme in the fields of philosophy and science. Aristotle's erroneous view of the sexes was doubt doubly harmful because it was his rather than plato's view that held sway throughout the middle ages the church thus inherited a view of women that is entirely without foundation in the bible jesus was certainly no woman hater i'll say no more but you'll be hearing from me again let's take a little side note here got me a little fired up thanks aristotle fuck you (laughs) oh man So Aristotle was kind of the nice little push towards treating women a little little shitty. So that's unfortunate. But hey, it is what it is. Can't change it. Well, we're trying. Trying to change it. But you know, can't change what happened in the past is what I mean. All right, let's continue. When Sophie had read the chapter on Aristotle one and a half times, she returned it to the brown envelope and remained sitting, staring into space. She suddenly became aware of the mess surrounding her. Books and ring binders lay scattered on the floor. Socks and sweaters, tights and jeans hung up half out of the closet. On the chair in front of the writing desk was a huge pile of dirty laundry. Sophie had an irresistible desire to clear up. The first thing she did was to pull all the clothes out of the closet and onto the floor. It was necessary to start all over. Then she began folding her things very neatly and stacking them all tidy on the shelves. The closet had seven shelves. One was for underwear, for socks and tights, and one for jeans. She gradually filled up each shelf. She never had any question about where to put anything. Dirty laundry went into a plastic bag she found under the bottom shelf. One thing she did have trouble with, a white knee-length stocking. The problem was that the other one of the pair was missing. What's more, it had never been Sophie's. She examined it carefully. There was nothing to identify the owner, but Sophie had a strong suspicion about who the owner was. She threw it up on the top of the shelf to join the Legos, the video cassette, and the red silk scarf. Sophie turned her attention to the floor. She sorted books, ring binders, magazines, and posters, exactly as the philosophy teacher had described in the chapter on Aristotle. When she had done that, she made her bed and got started on her writing desk. The last thing she did was to gather all the pages on Aristotle into a neat pile. She fished out an empty ring binder and a hole punch, made holes in the pages, and clipped them into the ring binder. This also went on to the top shelf. Later on in the day, she would have to bring in the cookie tin from the den. From now on, things would be kept neat, and she didn't only mean in her room. After reading Aristotle, she realized it was just as important to keep her ideas orderly. 
She had reserved the top shelf of the closet, especially for that kind of thing. It was the only place in the room that she did not yet have complete control over. There had been no sign of life from her mother for over two hours. <laughs> Sophie went downstairs. Before she woke her mother up, she decided to feed her pets. She bent over the goldfish bowl in the kitchen. One of the fishes was black, one orange, and one red and white. This is why she called them Blackjack, Gold Top, and Red Riding Hood. As she sprinkled fish food into the water, she said, You belong to nature's living creatures. You can absorb nourishment, you can grow and reproduce yourselves. More specifically, you belong to the animal kingdom, so you can move around and look at the world. To be precise, you are fish and you breathe through your gills and you can swim back and forth in the waters of life. Sophie put the lid back on the fish food jar. She was quite satisfied with the way she had placed the goldfish in nature's scale. And she was especially pleased with the expression, the waters of life. So now it was the Budrigar's turn. <laughs> Sophie poured a little bird seed in their feeding cup and said, Dear Smitten Smule, you have become dear little Bud Budgerigars because you grew out of the dear little Budgerigar eggs and because these eggs had the form of being Budgerigars. Luckily, you didn't grow into squawking parrots. Sophie then went into the large bathroom where the sluggish tortoise lay in a big box. Every now and then, when her mother showered, she yelled that she would kill it one day. But so far, it had been an empty threat. Sophie took a lettuce leaf from a large jam jar and laid it in the box. Dear Govinda, she said, you are not one of the speediest animals, but you certainly are able to sense a tiny fraction of the great big world we live in. You'll have to content yourself with the fact that you are not only one who can't exceed your own limits. You are not the only one. Shirkin was probably out catching mice. That was a cat's nature, after all. Sophie crossed the living room toward her mother's bedroom. A vase of daffodils stood on the coffee table. It was as if the yellow blooms bowed respectfully as Sophie went by. She stopped for a moment and let her fingers gently brush their smooth heads. You belong to the living part of nature, too, she said. Actually, you are quite privileged compared to the vase you are in. But unfortunately, you are not able to appreciate it. Then Sophie tiptoed into her mother's bedroom. Although her mother was a deep, in a deep sleep, Sophie laid a hand on her forehead. You are one of the luckiest ones, she said, because you are not only alive like the lilies of the field, and you are not only a living creature like Shirkin or Govinda. You are a human, and therefore have the rare capacity of thought. What on earth are you talking about, Sophie? Her mother had woken up more quickly than usual. I was just saying that you look like a lazy tortoise. I can otherwise inform you that I have tidied up my room with philosophic thoroughness. Her mother lifted her head. I'll be right there, she said. Will you put the coffee on? Sophie did as she asked, and they were soon sitting in the kitchen over coffee, juice, and chocolate. Suddenly Sophie said, Have you ever wondered why we are alive, Mom? Oh, not again. Yes, because now I know the answer. People live on this planet so that someone can go around giving names to everything. Is that right? I never thought of that. Then you have a big problem, because a human is a thinking animal. If you don't think, you're not really a human. Sophie! Imagine if there were only vegetables and animals. Then there wouldn't have been anybody to tell the difference between cat and dog or lily and gooseberry. Vegetables and animals are living too, but we're the only creatures that can categorize nature into different groups and classes. You really are the most peculiar girl I've ever had, said her mother. 
I should hope so, said Sophie. Everybody is more or less peculiar. Peculiar. <laughs> peculiar. Uh, I'm a person, so I am more or less peculiar. You have only one girl, so I am the most peculiar. What I meant was that you scare the living daylights out of me with all that new talk. You are easily scared then. Later that afternoon, Sophie went back to the den. She managed to smuggle the big cookie tin up to her room without her mother noticing. First, she put all the pages in the right order. Then she punched holes in them and put them in the ring binder, before the chapter on Aristotle. Finally, she numbered each page in the top right-hand corner. There were in all over 50 pages. Sophie was in the process of compiling her own book on philosophy. It was not by her, but written especially for her. She had no time to do her homework for Monday. They were probably going to have a test in religious knowledge, but the teacher always said he valued personal commitment and valued judgments. Sophie felt she was beginning to have a certain basis for both. All right, that is the end of Aristotle. Ooh, yes, definitely a long video. <laughs> um, let's just quickly say some thoughts here uh, before we end this. So, Aristotle, what a, what a guy. <laughs> Where is the beginning of this chapter? There we go. A long one here. So he kind of rejected some of Plato's um, theories. The the theory of ideas, right? The idea chicken, the idea horse. That everything before it even existed was simply an idea in consciousness. We can call it collective consciousness or whatever. But Aristotle's like, no, 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 no. What about form? That everything wasn't just simply an idea, because if you think about that, it's, it is kind of like another realm. It's another layer added onto it, where it's like, okay, so it has to be an idea before it becomes something. So Aristotle was thinking, no, actually, it's already a thing. It's already a form. And we, with our human senses, perceive it as it what it is. Now, Who's to say if Aristotle is right, if Plato's right, maybe they're both right in some kind of way. I can't say whether or not any of that is 100% true. But it makes you really think about it. So has something, let's say, their, their example of a horse, which apparently is the most popular, his favorite example. <laughs> um, so a horse, let's say, comes into existence and it is in itself essentially a horse. But we, the question is why? Why did that horse come into existence in the first place? And some would say, oh, well, God created it. Why? <laughs> I always ask why. Uh, but was that already just a thing, a form in itself? Or was it an idea of God, an idea of this consciousness? It's really hard to say. I don't know for sure. I mean... I don't know. I don't know. What do, what do you think? Do you think that everything was simply a concept and an idea before it was created? Or has it already always existed and we are just perceiving it with our human senses? Oh, I don't know about that one. And then you've got the, the substance. Yes. So the substance of what something is. The substance of a human being. What makes you a human being? You know, the emotions, your ability to perceive and have thoughts. Uh, yeah, that, that's definitely substance. You know, the substance of a dog. 
they are loyal. They love treats and pets and like they, they have characteristics, right? So I love that Aristotle kind of explained substance, that you need to have substance to classify something as something. Well, and then we go back to, you know, the fact that human beings, like Sophie said, are really the only ones capable of categorizing, right? We put things into boxes and we were like, this is what this is. And, you know, these are glasses and this is a book. We categorize literally everything. We have a name for practically everything. And we're still discovering things and like putting things into all these boxes. Now, it's totally understandable. Like that's just human nature to want to have some order and understand. I mean, personally... I like to have order. I get really stressed out when there's chaos. And I couldn't imagine not knowing where things are. You know what I mean? Imagine people who, let's just say they have like a super messy home or maybe even hoarders. And like they're looking for something and they can't find it because it's lost in a big pile of stuff. It's like, I understand humans need order. Like it's so hard to live in chaos Uh, But sometimes we do have to embrace it at the same time. But where? I was going on a total rant. Where was I even going with that? (laughs) Uh, But yeah, okay, so logic. So apparently Aristotle is kind of the creator of scientific logic. But again, it's hard to like completely say that Aristotle's views are 100% correct, right? I think there's way more to it than that. I think um, things, my very, very popular phrase, things can change. So, oh, but then you get to that, like, can a horse change into something else? See, that gets a little, like, uh, mystical, a little fantasy there. But at the same time, why not? (laughs) I know, I know. I'm I'm just going on a rant here. I'll, I'll shut up. But... All right, well, let's see what else. Oh, well, you know, we already briefly talked about the views on women. So thanks, Aristotle. So then we get to ethics, which is, you know, he talks a lot about balance, how things need to be, things need to be very balanced. Uh, Without the balance, there is chaos, like I said earlier, and it's hard to live in chaos. So, you know, you can't, like he gave the example, you can't be too liberal, but you have to be liberal enough and, you know, people have a problem with the word liberal, whatever. You you can't be too much of one thing and not have a balance of something else. You know, if you're angry all the time and there's no happiness, there's no contentment, then you just live in that anger and it causes problems. Just like if you don't, you know, polarity. We go back to the Kabbalion, which is the other book we're doing for book club. Polarity is one of the hermetic principles. There has to be one thing and the other hot and cold, and everything in the middle. And if there's no balance, then you it's just not a, it's not a fun time <laughs> without that balance. And then he, he goes into politics, which, you know, gives the examples, three, three possibilities of what, what could potentially work. And definitely, you know, uh, democracy has, has overtaken um, a lot of those, you know, there are still places with monarchies and kingships and what what have you, uh, dictatorships even. But yes, democracy, I feel like, is one of the most important ways that people can come together as a society. 
Um, but then you do potentially have that mob uh, potential. Potentiality is what he talks about a lot, um, Aristotle. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I don't want to get into politics, really. You know, I just think we are all human beings who need to be kind and support each other. But, hey, that's a radical idea. So, you know. <laughs> um, but, yes, let's get into a little little touch on potentiality. Because ta- Aristotle talks about, you know, things have the potential to become something. You know, there was a line in here where they said something about how, uh, like, raindrops and soil aren't classified as living things. I think that's what it said. Mm. There are non-living things such as stones, drops of water, clumps of soil. I have to disagree (laughs) because I think that water and soil and all those are living things. I think, you know, it's hard to classify that as just something non-living because I feel like there is energy and there is power in water and soil and everything around us, all the material around, all nature, I think should be classified as living. Dirt. You might you might pick up a handful of dirt and be like, oh, this is dead. But it's really not. There's like so many like microorganisms and everything in the dirt and it's just like so complex, right? Um, but he talks about the potential for that dirt. Does it have a potential to become something? I think so. I personally think um, that everything can work together, especially if we're talking about nature, which is what he focuses on. It all works together. It has potential to create life, and and it is very um, what's the word? Symbiotic? Is that the word I'm looking for? It, it just it flows. Everything flows together. And then you know you got the question of does the rain happen to water the plants or? Does the rain just simply happen because of uh, gravity and the way it works or, you know, because the plants need water and it just, it's a lot to think about. <laughs> um, but I, I don't know. Let me know your thoughts. I should, I should stop rambling because I know a lot of my personal views on it are a little weird. Um, you know, I like to keep a very open mind, very, very open um, to the point where I just like accept everything in a way and i know that can get a little um little confusing so let me know your thoughts please down below in the comments what do you think of all this of aristotle and his views uh just let me know of course thank you so much for joining if you like podcast format links below we've got all of these videos in podcast format so i just gotta put that in there just in case you would rather do that so anyways all right have a good day